I deeply regret that I met Jeffrey Epstein. Without me, he wouldn't be the billionaire he is today. Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gaznavi at Cena Now on all social media. Justin Williams is here. You can find him on Facebook or JustinWilliamsComedy.com. Justin, you're on Instagram too now. Is no. that right? Can we tell people? No. no? I'm not on Instagram. Uh, they know now. Hey, but let me tell you, I gotta put some <laughs> pants on, on there before I get on there. <laughs> find them, people. Yeah. Tag them in our posts. And of course, uh, I've loved talking to everybody on our community line. Shoot us a text, 412-285-1255. It goes right to me and messages for Justin or Hazel. Uh, I pass along. Uh, I think we're going to start doing some events. I think this will be fun. Maybe a happy hour, but it will only be for our community members that uh, text me. So if you want to get, you know, join our happy hour, it's going to be very exclusive. You're going to see us get drunk on Zoom. I think that what more could you want? out of an audience is to see us at our most vulnerable. Uh, Only hardcore supporters, by the way. You got to have our flag. You got to be yeah. willing to rush the capital for us. That's only the most hardcore supporters. We want to see fraudsters tattoos. So 412-285-1255. Uh, <laughs> shoot us a text. <laughs> want you to argue with people on the internet about us. Want you to cause rifts with your family over us. Everything. Yeah, ruin Thanksgiving because you're standing so hard for fraudsters. And if you call me now at this private number, I'll give you offline for $10 a minute. I'll tell you your future. (laughs) So, Justin, you know, the guy that was speaking in the cold open there is our fraudster for today. His name is Stephen Hoffenberg. Now, Stephen Hoffenberg wouldn't be a person on this show if it wasn't for who he knows, which is Jeffrey Epstein. And we'll get to how they're connected uh, a little bit later in the show. But Stephen Hoffenberg went to prison for a Ponzi scheme that defrauded 200,000 investors of over $460 million. He served 18 of a 20-year sentence, paid a million-dollar fine, settled another $60 million civil suit with the SEC, but still has a criminal restitution to pay of over $400 million. Now he says Jeffrey Epstein was his uncharged co-conspirator and that if the government wants that money, they should look for it in Jeffrey Epstein's offshore accounts because that is where the money is. That's a lot of money. And that's also just like a wild thing to tell people, like, where can we find the money? Oh, you can find it. All right. If you search in (laughs) Jeffrey Epstein's offshore accounts, it's like the most specific place to find the money. (laughs) And then he's like, he's like whispering to his friend, hey, good luck with that, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I got a place where you can find the money. Uh, uh, Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you exactly where it is. You can find it in Al Capone's vault. (laughs) (laughs) And I should say, though, that we're, we're not doing Jeffrey Epstein. This is not the Jeffrey Epstein episode. And I think it's cool, though, that we are doing this because... You know, what are we going to do that the New York Times or Netflix or all these other places really haven't covered? But what we can do is talk about the people in Jeffrey Epstein's orbit. And I think that gives you a little bit more insight into not just Epstein, but the people around him, what was around all of those crimes they did. And frankly, I know 
you haven't been talking about old Stevie Hoffs. Nobody has. Yeah, just to wrap up, I actually do have an update on Jeffrey Epstein that oh, no one has covered. fantastic. It turns out that Jeffrey Epstein has killed himself. Oh, my God. This is breaking news. I've been waiting to break some news on here, Justin. Thank you. Yes. Uh, contrary you to what memes say, Jeffrey Epstein has indeed killed himself. Well, there you, there you heard it here first, people. This is it. Dr. Justin Williams... The uh, exposer of Dr. Umar Johnson has told us yet again another key piece of information. Jeffrey Epstein has killed himself because he knew the truth about the black man. He knew that homosexuals were put in the black community in order to dilute the power of the black man. Epstein knew this. That's why he had an island. When you break down the meaning of island, I stands for I am a black man of power. Yes. <laughs> Stands for. All right, all right. We're gonna. This acrostic is gonna. It's gonna. We're gonna die. Oh, it's so good. And if you're wondering what Justin was talking about there, go back and listen to two of our episodes in our Race Hustler series on Dr. Umar Johnson. You're gonna like it. Well, Justin, the, you know the 200,000 victims included two insurance companies in Illinois and Ohio where people had money set aside for medical expenses when they were older, pension funds, individual investors, churches, and even the country of Cape Verde. What? Yeah, point of privileged ignorance here. I have no idea where that was. I had to look it up. I didn't know it was a country. Uh, I, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. I'm sorry to the, the Cape Ver- Verdean. How do you, is it Verdean? This is, I'm guessing Cape that's the wrong pronunciation. Cape Verdean. Verdean. We got that right now? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> so can you tell us anything about the about Cape Verde? Crash course. Cape Verde is a series of 10 islands off the coast of West Africa that has no extradition agreement with the United States, which makes it an attractive place for people looking to hide or launder money. Also, because it is a small island African nation, it also makes it an attractive destination for grifters who can hook people in by promising large investments. So if you saw Filthy Rich, it seems like this guy's on a total redemption tour here. But I don't really buy it. I mean, I think he built a bunch of people that he never met. And when he saw that there's these sweet young women were being abused by someone he knew, well, I could see why you would want to distance yourself from all of that. And maybe in the course of watching Filthy Rich, you're like, wow, but he really is remorseful. He wants to do the right thing now, I guess. But by the end of this episode... You're going to see the real fraudster that is Stephen Hoffenberg. And it's going to be a lot more like there's no honor among thieves than anything else. Yeah, it's like rooting for Tony Soprano after he kills Ralphie. You know, he doesn't really care about Tracy and he doesn't care about Pi am I, right? It's like, you know, Tony Soprano may not be the worst, but that doesn't make him a good guy. Exactly. Stephen Jude Hoffenberg was born in Brooklyn in 1945. Like a lot of other fraudsters, they were small time before they were big time. In 1971, Hoffenberg pled guilty to attempted grand larceny in New York for trying to steal a $10,500 ring from a jewelry store. It's not so much that he did the crime, right? Because that's fine. I get it. People do crimes. People make mistakes. I don't care about the crime itself. What I care is the type of crime. Theft is a crime of dishonesty, and that speaks to character. And what we know is that Grand larceny is when you steal something that's more than $1,000. So in 1971, he got five years probation. Boom, not so bad for stealing that much or trying to steal that ring. So that was 71. 
One year later, he must have thought to himself, hmm, stealing jewelry is difficult. What could be easier? Ah, I know, finance. And so in 1972, a year later, he opens Towers Financial Corporation with $2,000 and a couple of employees. That's it. Real small time, small business kind of guy. Just the American dream. It really is. To even go further on that point, the type of business it was, it was a debt collection agency paying a penny on the dollar for loans that the sellers thought were worthless. So I think it's important now to just kind of quickly explain how these debt collection agencies work. And this is how they can make a whole shit ton of money. So Justin, <laughs> let's say I owe you $100 and I never pay you a dime. Instead of you taking a 100% loss, right? You've called me, you've written me letters, you sent me emails, you've texted me, you texted my parents, you texted my brother, you looked for this money, you're never gonna get the money. Hazel comes around and she says, Justin, I am gonna take the, the burden of finding that $100 from Cena off your shoulders. I'm gonna pay you $1 and then I will own that contract that says Cena owes you $100. And instead of him owing you $100, he's gonna owe me $100. So Hazel now has the ability to call me up however many times she wants in a given day and make me change my phone number and send me letters and call everyone in my life and try to find whatever she can to pay that debt. Now, let's say she only gets 50 bucks. So that's 49 more dollars than she had before. So boom, there you go. All she needs was just a little bit of a piece of that debt to make this a profitable business. So who were the people that owed money? It was people that owed money to hospitals, banks, phone companies. And you could imagine the vulnerable people that owed money to, let's say, a hospital for a medical bill. And then all of a sudden, Hoffenberg's company is calling you day and night. I'm sure they were very gentle and hospitable about it. But they were calling all the time. And all they needed to do was just get 20, 30, 40% of the original bill and there you go, you're off to the fucking races. And this is how he built his empire. He made tons of fucking money just taking worthless debt from people that didn't want to find it anymore, finding just little bits of it, adding it all up, and all of a sudden, this guy is making it. I mean, doing well. Talking late 80s, private jet around the country well. He's like Ric Flair, except for he only takes advantage of vulnerable people who've ran up long distance phone bills that they can't pay. Well, how did, did the Nature Boy do that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Ric Flair has his famous promo where he goes, Woo! That's right! You got cancer and you can't pay the bill! But the Nature Boy says that you gotta give me $20 or we're gonna take your car! We're gonna take your car! <laughs> oh, the Nature Boy. So Hoffenberg has grown his wealth. And while his business line is abhorrent and it makes me feel uncomfortable, he did this all himself. He was making money and doing well. And so guys like that grind it out. But you know what? The type of business he's in doesn't necessarily lend himself to getting into the fancy circles of Wall Street and the upper echelons of high society. 
you know, there's an energy to people that have like a chip on their shoulder or always think they're the underdog and it can motivate them positively or negatively. Yeah. You know, it's uh, you know, kind of like the Trumps and the Kushners. If you feel that owning land in Queens or owning land in New Jersey is uh, somehow not respected by high society, this is when you start making a bunch of questionable deals to break into the Manhattan market. Exactly right. And there's no other instance where you can see this character flaw in Hoffenberg than when he wants to try to acquire Pan Am Airlines in 1987. Now, to make a deal like that, you'll need to have cash or assets that tell the sellers, hey, I'm stacked over here. Look at all this money or look at all my houses or or look at all my businesses that I own. I am a financially sound buyer. Now, at this point, he's already running a Ponzi scheme. And we'll get into that a little bit later in just a minute here. But he doesn't have much to show on his actual books other than some fake investments and debt collection revenue, which doesn't scream owner of the skies to anybody, all right, if you're going to try to buy an airline. I have five shares of Amazon, so I'm actually going to try to buy JetBlue later this week. Exactly. <laughs> so, so to beef up his books, he acquires two small insurance agencies in Des Plaines, Illinois, called the United Fire Insurance Company and the Associated Life Insurance Company. This is how he peacocks to Pan Am. I've got this insurance company with a long but checkered credit history, and I am coming for you, Pan Am. Come on! Around this time is when Hoffenberg meets Epstein, and we start to learn about the Ponzi scheme. Again, we'll play a quick clip from Filthy Rich, the documentary. I met Jeff Epstein in the 80s after he was thrown out of Bear Stearns. I was the CEO of Towers Financial Corporation, the CEO of a very large company who had employed Jeffrey Epstein in Europe called me and said, this is a brilliant man that we'd like you to interview for North America because he has credentials on Wall Street and he's loaded with energy, but his moral compass is upside down. Jeffrey Epstein had cheated and stolen money on his expense account He definitely appealed to us because we were running a Ponzi scheme. And he understood Wall Street and he could deliver substantial results in this criminal enterprise. Did you hear him smile? Could you hear him just go, did you hear him? That's a smile. He was fucking smiling when he said we were running a Ponzi scheme. Like he was like chomping at the bit. If you watch the show, if you watch the miniseries, He's grinning like he got something. This man spent 18 years in prison, and he is still grinning about the Ponzi scheme that let 200,000 people hold in the bag for his fucking bullshit. Woo! Hate this man. I like it when you're a mass fraudster, and that's not even the worst thing you've ever done. (laughs) So my guess is that He really did just feel guilty realizing how pervasive the Epstein sex trafficking was, and he wants to kind of revise the record to clarify now that he was just a simple fraudster caught in the wake of the proto-fraudster Epstein. Yeah, you know, I'm a dirty thief, but I'm no molester. No, 100, right? You know, he knows what happens to to the molesters in prison. You know, everyone knows what happens there. You know, you get your ass beat, you know? Just a simple fraudster. Well, you're, you're welcome to the cigarettes. So he hires Epstein at his office for $25,000 per month. By the way, that is 
$56,000 in today's dollars. So what was the Ponzi scheme? Well, there are a few parts, and here's the main part, okay? Fake shit. There we go. All right, great show, everybody. Uh, No, it's just really just so much fake shit. Well-produced fake shit. Once Hoffenberg bought the companies, the, the two insurance companies, they made them part of a new company, United Diversified Corporation. Then they took that and sold bonds to it. Remember Friedman's Bank? You're selling a bond because you think, hey, I'm going to build a project. I'm going to be able to pay it back. I'm really sure that if someone gives me this money, I'm going to be able to pay them back. Hoffenberg was creating fake investments and bringing people in to give him money for a promised certain amount of return. All Hoffenberg and Epstein had to do was bring these poor saps in, show them a fancy office, show them that some traders were working, uh, show them like a, like a PowerPoint prospectus that had made up numbers in it, and boom, people would hand over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to these guys. And all you have to do to keep going is when one person gives you money is to give the previous guy a little taste so that they know that a little bit of that interest is coming in for their investment. So as long as the last guy's happy, you're golden. Meanwhile, though, Hoffenberg and Epstein are siphoning funds from the insurance agencies to make its bid for Pan Am look better. They're taking money, putting it into their company so they could show Pan Am, hey, look at all the money we got here. And we've got these assets in these in these two insurance companies. Court documents even show Hoffenberg issued 50 checks from the insurance companies to pay his stepdaughter's tuition, expenses on his private plane, and even the monthly $25,000 retainer to Epstein. I mean, Hoffenberg likes to frame it like he didn't know what was going on. But he was close to Epstein, especially on this deal. In the bid to take over Pan Am, it said, and this is a quote, Jeffrey Epstein, chairman of the board of directors of Intercontinental Asset Group, which, by the way, is the fakest fucking sounding business I've ever heard. Intercontinental Asset Group is the worst. Is a financial advisor who has been familiar with Pan Am for approximately six years. Epstein serves as an advisor to Towers United's management with respect to the proposed transaction. So, This is a letter that's part of this bid that says, hey, when you hear Jeffrey Epstein on the conference call or you see him in the meeting, here's why. He is a man of stature. He is a man of knowledge. He is one that is close to Towers and that we know him and we love him. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) Run! 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 (laughs) Get out, girl! Meanwhile, the the guys in the boardroom are like, I'd say that man is charming. It's uh, <laughs> fucking terrifying. <laughs> Things seem to be going well for these two. They're flush with cash, rolling in from the Ponzi scheme, and they're just straight cutting checks for themselves from a variety of companies. Surely something must have happened to put a crack in this Ponzi fortress they had going. Good evening, two hellish nightmares coming together in one terrible reality. That is the story of the Lockerbie disaster. 
of how death and destruction in the sky brought death and devastation on the ground below. In this special edition on the crash of Pan Am Flight 103, which has almost certainly cost the lives of more than 270 people, we examine the growing conviction that terrorist sabotage was the cause of the disaster. We'll also be considering the startling possibility that warnings of a bomb attack on Pan Am were given, but not fully acted upon. And with the help of a former security advisor to President Reagan, we'll be assessing which terrorist group might have carried out such an outrage. Ah, yes. Nothing like your Ponzi scheme getting blown up by a terrorist attack. Phrasing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I know that maybe that's not the right choice of words, but they, and there were actually a lot of Americans on that flight, and it was only this last year in December of 2020 that the United States actually identified and charged the man they viewed as responsible for the attack itself. There was a guy actually in the UK that they put in prison for years, and he came out and he was still saying that he was innocent, and he died saying that he was innocent still. Obviously, the Lockerbie bombing was done by Muammar Gaddafi, greenlit by him in Libya, and then it was a Libyan terrorist that was ultimately found responsible for this stuff. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough one. Yeah. And, you know, even before we had actually even identified and even tried a lot of these people, we had actually sponsored the rebels that ended up killing Muammar Gaddafi live on the Internet. USA! 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 This is exactly what... American foreign policy is so good at doing deals with despots when it's convenient and ignoring when there's an actual terrorist bombing that happens in the world and then funding the rebels to murder that guy when he doesn't fall in line. I mean, that's just good business. It's my favorite thing because Gaddafi thought he was actually safe from Western uh, intervention before the Arab Spring because he gave up his weapons of mass destruction program. (laughs) Sucker. (laughs) Man, that was another uh, very weird day on the internet when they killed that guy. Anyways, so (laughs) you can imagine that when a plane gets blown up, that is going to do some damage to the valuation of that company. Maybe not the best investment, of course, and Pan Am doesn't exist anymore, so you can see how that investment strategy probably went. And remember, a Ponzi scheme only works if you can keep paying the previous person that gave you money. Well, when the Pan Am deal fell through, that was kind of the beginning of the end for Hoffenberg. Believe it or not, though, it didn't happen immediately. They were still able to keep selling bonds, faking financial records to trick investors into giving them money. Hoffenberg is able to continue to raise money to the tune of nearly $400 million doing the same shit. All the way up to 1993, they were cruising. I mean, it's amazing. They made these insurance companies insolvent. And they failed to take over Pan Am. They even tried to take over another air freight company, and that failed. And they still were able to keep their Ponzi scheme running. And in 1993, the celebration music was This Is How We Do It by Montel Jordan. (laughs) This is how we do it. I think that's the right year. (laughs) Maybe maybe a little later. I mean, it's emotionally the right year. Yeah. Yeah. Once their deal with Pan Am didn't pan out. Oh, God. Once the, once the Pan Am deal didn't work out, the SEC actually got wind of it and took a look, and Towers Financial actually got fined for trading unregistered securities. Now, a security is just like any investment vehicle that you want people to invest in. 
The thing that we have in America is an SEC, and you've got to register those securities. Remember, Jacob Wool actually got in trouble for the same stuff because he was making investments up. This is what's important about this. When you just make shit up, most people just assume the security they're investing in, whether it's a stock or a bond or whatever, especially when they walk into a fancy office, is at the very least registered. These guys didn't even bother registering. So they got dinged for it. And while the SEC could have like went really deep into their books and found out about this Ponzi scheme, they didn't. But they were on the radar now. So take that, put that in the back of your mind, and let's keep moving forward. It wasn't until 1993, though, that the real heat started coming down. That is when Stephen Hoffenberg and a friend, Abe Hirschfield, bought the nearly bankrupt New York Post. And just as a side note to our listeners, if you want to listen to the funniest thing you've ever heard in your life, listen to Gilbert Gottfried on the Howard Stern Show making Abe Hirschfeld repeat the worst joke in the world like 25 times in a row as they mute their mics and laugh at him every time they get him to repeat it. It is the single greatest (laughs) live radio moment in the... When a man's ego cannot get out of the way. (laughs) But just a quick aside again on on Abe Hirschfield. Here's what a New York Post writer wrote about him in a quote obituary for him. If it's wrong to speak ill of the dead, then let me be wrong. I once spent a month in close working proximity to honest Abe, as he called himself, and the scars have yet to heal. In my 55 years, I have not encountered a personality so possessed of Iago-like motiveless malignity. Very Shakespearean there. A mind animated by equal parts greed and cruelty and wily and ruthless enough to get away with it. Jesus, that is fierce. This guy and Hoffenberg were like pig and shit together. But we'll cover Honest Abe next season because he is too good to pass up. So how did all this go down? How did this takeover of the New York Post go down? Hoffenberg was flying around on private jets, constantly boasting about how rich he was, you know, typical. And he kept saying how he was going to save the New York Post, that everyone even wanted him to save the New York Post. And the SEC had already dinged him before, remember. So he's on their radar. And when the government hears about a potentially huge deal happening with what they already know is a fraudster, well, they're going to look into it. And in big deals like this also, remember, the seller's got to make sure your books are clean. Just like when Minko got an auditor to clean his books, Hoffenberg, unfortunately, did not go the extra mile. A single accountant was able to poke holes in his books. And the New York Times even reported that accounting experts were critical of his method of evaluating companies' assets. The assets were basically the unpaid bills of an assortment of healthcare facilities purchased at a discount that he supposedly expected to collect on. Remember, debt collection. This is basically the same type of business model. Buy something for pennies on the dollar, try to get something a little bit back from it, whatever you could salvage. Wow, less thoughtful than Barry Minko, a guy that had the wisdom to cast himself in his biopic. (laughs) All right, February 6th, 1993. Hoffenberg signs on to buy the New York Post for $2.5 million. That's about $4.5 million today. And this is on a Saturday. But for a moment, let's just think. $4.5 million for the fucking New York Post. I mean, that's fucking crazy. That is not that much money 
for a gigantic newspaper. At least it is gigantic now. February 8th, the Monday, okay, two days later, the SEC files a civil suit accusing Hoffenberg of using false financial statements to sell more than $400 million in securities. During the same time, the U.S. Southern District of New York starts a criminal investigation. All right, so just now a couple weeks later, February 17th, 1993, Hoffenberg makes a deal with the court that he pledges he won't, quote, withdraw, transfer, pledge, encumbrance, assignment, dissipation, concealment, or other disposal of any funds or properties. Basically, don't move your money, don't hide your money, don't try to sell shit, don't try to put your fucking money in, in Jeffrey Epstein's offshore accounts, none of that shit. March 1993, the pressure is too much. Towers Financial files for bankruptcy protection under Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code. He cites liabilities of $271.6 million and $251.7 million in assets. So more liabilities than assets, which means fucking nothing. There's nothing in there. They can't pay the debts. They don't have any assets. So to be clear, between the time he signs the contract and when he files for bankruptcy, it's about a month. And he is running the New York Post with Hirschfeld during that time. He's heard screaming in the newsroom with violent outbursts. The staff is terrified. They're furious. He wears his press pass everywhere so that people knew who he was. I mean, no one liked Hoffenberg or Hirschfeld. So when Hoffenberg files for bankruptcy, somehow the court let Hirschfeld take all of Hoffenberg's shares. <laughs> they just they just let him do it. And meanwhile, it's like everyone still hates Hirschfeld. <laughs> it's like... I just don't get it, man. It's like well, how evil, uh, you know, the, the the judicial system is so hamstrung to a certain point that they can only do so much, I guess. And like when they're just left with like two terrible people and one of them's got to go, they're like, well, I guess we got this other guy. I guess we'll just let him do it. It's so funny. Like even Epstein could have been in this like equation. Like he would have been maybe at that time in 1993, he would have been like the lesser of three evils at this point. Exactly. What about this charming gentleman, Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> Do you know he was a professor? Oh my God, I'm going to be sick. I'm getting disgusted with myself right now. All right. But listen, who comes in to save the day to take the New York Post away from Hirschfield to save the staff? Two people that you would never think of teaming up. Mario Cuomo, then governor of New York, literally swoops in, tells everyone, we are going to save this paper. This is what he's saying. He's even saying, even though this paper prints crazy shit about him, he still believes in rigorous journalism. Quote, rigorous. Okay, people, rigorous. It's the New York Post. Cuomo brings in Rupert, I bought all the fake Hitler diaries, Murdoch, to buy the paper. Cuomo even helps Murdoch get a waiver from the FCC since Murdoch already owned a fucking news network. So thank God they saved the New York Post. You know, without this, we wouldn't have gotten great headlines like Ike beats Tina to death. <laughs> that was the headline when Ike Turner died. Oh. Beats in quotation marks. Yes, I'm glad we saved this bastion of journalism. So 
Hoffenberger at this point has lost the New York Post, but he's pissed. He's not going away quietly. And he really wants to get back at them. So in September 24th, 1993, he announces that he is starting a new newspaper for women called Her New York. <laughs> That's so good. This sounds like something Lena Dunham would do. Ladies. <laughs> <laughs> He even says, quote, this is my vengeance. I want to have a newspaper to get back at all those people who said I couldn't do it. And we have a cover story with Amory Schumer on the front. (laughs) And that shit went nowhere, man. I think it was just another scam to get people to give him money. And so by September 1994, Hoffenberg, not surprisingly, violates the terms of his deal with the government and is back in court. This time, he's got to plead guilty to all four counts that he made the deal for, right? When you make a deal with the government, they say, hey, if you break this deal, these are the charges that are going to come down to you. And here they are. Conspiracy to violate the securities laws by fraudulently selling securities. We know that how that happened. He made up these fake instruments, these fake financial investments. Mail fraud, mail anything that has lies on it. There you go. Conspiracy to obstruct justice. When there was an investigation about the fraud, he instructed his lawyers, his staff, everyone to lie to authorities. And of course, when those authorities go to those people down the food chain, they say to him, hey, we know you're lying. And so all those people flipped and they're like, okay, great. So that's obstruction of justice added to the list. And of course, when you have all this fake shit, you're avoiding taxes. So they, they hit him with tax evasion as well. So he pleads guilty. And surely this is the end of the story, the end of the line for Stephen Hoffenberg. Nay. Nay, he says. And he comes back to court. And he, <laughs> this guy says, you know, I'm crazy. I, there's no way I could have made this judgment to say that I'm guilty or pleaded guilty. I am not of sound mind. He tries to plead that he's crazy. Now, all of you know, the court can't just eye roll and say, go fuck yourself, you're lying. They have to prove it. So they get a doctor in to evaluate Hoffenberg. And of course, they determine, drumroll please, he's competent. Okay, not difficult. And you can't fault the guy for trying, though. I mean, he didn't want to go to prison. But that wasn't enough. Just saying I'm crazy was not enough. He comes back a second time and he says, I'm blinded one eye. I was not able to see clearly out of one eye, so I could not have been in the right state of mind to plead guilty. So what does the court do? They get a fucking optometrist. And they determine, drumroll please, that he can fucking see. I can't. This guy, piece of work, this guy. So he's guilty. And he gets sentenced to 20 years. Bill Cosby actually went blind for his trial, too, actually. But he's like, I'm blind. I can't go to prison. (laughs) Turns out that wasn't a prerequisite. (laughs) Exactly. Blind people can go to prison. I'm sorry to all the blind people out there. But if you do the crime, you got to do the time. So who were all the victims in this? We talked a lot about these 200,000 people. 
The Washington Post reported, quote, looting of the two insurers left 4,000 Illinois customers out of $9 million that they had set aside to cover their medical bills. Another 2,200 Ohio customers lost $1.8 million. Verena Brown, a teacher from Granbury, Texas, invested her full retirement fund of $11,000 to Stephen Hoffenberg. All gone. Marvin Gerber told CBS News that Hoffenberg swindled him out of $250,000. And of course, the people of Cape Verde. Turns out they got involved because Hoffenberg was doing a deal trying to get investment from Cape Verde, just as Justin kind of alluded to earlier. And to do that transaction, their bank needed a letter from Hoffenberg's finance attorney that they were solvent. Obviously difficult because, again, everything was fake. <laughs> so this guy, whose name was beautifully Chef Kiss, Bruce Bronson, which on <laughs> the alliteration, I would wish my name was this way. I just I might change it to Bruce Bronson. He's the guy that signed the paperwork. And I could just imagine in the office, it's just like, oh, you need some paperwork signed? Go call up Bruce Bronson. Classic Bruce. <laughs> so the Cape Verdeans joined this lawsuit because they are asserting that everything that Towers Financial and Bruce Bronson said was a lie. And oh, look, what do you know? So are the rest of the people in the lawsuit. They all are upset for the exact same thing. But did any of them get paid? This doesn't seem like it would end well for the investors or the Cape Verdeans. No, it will not end well, Justin, because here is where we start to see who Stephen Hoffenberg really is. The law firm representing the 200,000 victims, Alan P. Fraid of the law firm Minson Fraid PC, who not only had a long relationship with Hoffenberg, but had acted as his house counsel at Towers. Okay, yes, I think you heard me correctly. The lawyer for the victims of Hoffenberg was Hoffenberg's lawyer. <laughs> oh my, I guess you could say he ain't afraid of no conflict of interest. Amen. <laughs> Fraid had convinced all these victims that they should actually make a motion that Hoffenberg be allowed to renounce his U.S. citizenship for that of a Chinese citizenship so that he could conduct business in China. What? Yeah, man. The lawyer for the victims defrauded all of those people. And they all got nothing because when they challenged how fucking terrible these lawyers were, they sued in the wrong court and it got dismissed. This firm... Freight and Mintz was accused again in 2012 of defrauding their clients of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and both were eventually disbarred in 2019. It sounds like the lawyer from Carlito's Way, played by Sean Penn. <laughs> I, I think Sean Penn was a more honest lawyer, I think. Yeah, he actually gets Al Pacino out of prison. Uh, in yeah, the he was very passionate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he served 18 of a 20-year sentence, but... He paid a fine. He settled some stuff with the SEC. But at the end of the day, none of those 200,000 people, from what we can tell, ever got any justice, ever got any money back. That's just gone. They were left hold of the bag. But there is still this criminal restitution of $462 million that he owes. And he doesn't have it. And he wants to save face. Maybe he feels guilty that the fraudster that he was friends with is actually a pedophile. Either way, this guy is doing whatever he can to draw attention away from his actions and to blow up anything he knew about Epstein. And for what he says, he's talking to SDNY about it. 
Maybe this is just a way for them to delay making him pay the restitution. I found a YouTube show, The Opperman Report, where Hoffenberg is actually interviewed. And the audio is not great, but some things he says are amazing. And I kind of just want you to hear in his own words how he describes himself. Because, you know, we don't get to have him on this show, but this will be a good enough proxy. Stephen Hoffenberg is the man that was the CEO, chief executive officer of a publicly traded company called Towers Financial Corporation. <laughs> my favorite is my favorite is just like how he so fluidly speaks in the third person. So here's here's another like beautiful gem though from this interview that I was just shocked to know. And I think now it's going to lead to a fun segment that I'll bring up afterwards. Here it is. I was the CEO publisher, savior of the New York Post from going out of business right. in 1993, arranged by Governor Mario Cuomo. Right. And, uh, and, and what I, I bailed it out, stopped it from closing its doors. And, and then you were partners with Jeffrey Epstein at Tower Financial. Uh, and, and the corporate counsel over there was Rudy Giuliani, was being paid $1 million a year? Yes. The uh, outside corporate counsel was Rudy Giuliani's law firm. And their, their fees were around a million a year, yes. Okay. And, Rudy! Uh, you ran a pack for, for Donald Trump, right? I did run a pack supporting Donald Trump. I was originally oh, helping it gets better. Roger Stone, who was assisting Paul Manafort, until I did the research and found that Paul Manafort took all those millions from the overseas clients and that Donald Trump did not know about that. And when I found that out and explained it to the Trump team, they fired Paul Manafort. No honor among thieves. Yeah, I love it. It's like, uh, you know, uh, he starts trying to parse like among all of these like noted criminals. He's like, and then Paul Manafort did something that was slightly dishonest. And I was like, hey, hey, I'm only going to do business with Roger Stone and Rudy Giuliani. I, you know, Paul Manafort's <laughs> now going too far. It also wouldn't have anything to do with anything that Paul Manafort actually ended up becoming a government witness later. That wouldn't have alarmed him, right? No, of course not. And you know what's, uh, I, I was just waiting for him to say, and then I went golfing with the penguin, and <laughs> it's just like, what the six degrees of fraudsters, I think we got, is it six degrees, seven degrees? What's the Kevin Bacon game? It's not even six, six degrees, degrees in this case, right? It's like this guy is straight to the administration. <laughs> yeah. But all of these fraudsters are connected. The fact that they were paying Rudy Giuliani all this money and Rudy himself didn't know or probably knew that there was a Ponzi scheme going on. This is this is what we're talking about, people. Once you're in this system, once you're in the fraud circle, I mean, why why get out? And Kevin Trudeau, too, remember his links of trying to court the Trump administration, right? Yeah, it's like every financial criminal. Yeah, it didn't work for him, but every financial criminal saw that campaign as like, oh, this is this is our ticket. This is like this is the big grift that we want to carve a piece out of. Yeah. 
And so beyond that, he goes on to talk about how Epstein was actually working for the Israeli intelligence and how there is a dispute over $600 million in funds that were apparently from Towers Financial, but got transferred to another Epstein shell and is now in St. Thomas. I mean, no record that we saw on that shows that, but that doesn't mean it's wrong or it doesn't exist. The Israeli intelligence stuff I've seen in other places, so at least to a certain extent, this guy knows what buttons to push. It's one of those things where how much do you believe and how much do you not believe? I would tend to believe some of the stuff that he's throwing shade on other people because he probably knows about the skeletons, but we also have to take it with a grain of salt because we can't ever think that he's actually turned into a good guy or he's actually doing anything positive. Yeah, I'm of two minds about this, right? Like Israeli intelligence is sort of an extensive operation, right? They have one of the biggest intelligence infrastructures of any country in the world for security reasons, right? But I'm wondering what their concern would be with this case, right? Like the thing that kind of gives me pause, right, is Israeli intelligence becomes a very good, plausible group to blame if you're looking to like uh, shift attention away from something, right? If you're looking to feed into conspiracy theories, right? It's like, oh, Israeli intelligence knows where the money is. And like, especially if you're part of that Trump atmosphere, right? People will very much pick up on that because they're prone to sort of Jewish conspiracy theories as it is. No, they're very pro-Israeli though. <laughs> That's <laughs> They're pro-Israeli, but, it, but it's exactly that. It's like, it's, it's the idea of whether it's positive or negative, the idea that Jews are all knowing and involved in everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the problematic portion of this thing. But, you know, I've seen it in other places. It's the only piece from this that I've at least read in multiple areas. And whether I don't really feel like going down a rabbit hole of finding out whether or not Jeffrey Epstein was working for the Israeli intelligence. If I do find that out, I may get a fucking sniper bullet through my brain. So uh, we'll probably try to cover that later. Yeah. Well, I'll say it. I'm not Iranian. But I, I would say, yeah, the plausible part of this is <laughs> is that if... If Epstein was a donor, a supporter of Israel, right, um, he makes a good asset for Israeli intelligence because of Epstein's inner circle involves a lot of high profile political yeah. figures and they have leverage over him because they 100% know about that island and the girls on the island. So he actually, in that way, makes a very good intelligence asset. So it could be either. He could be telling the truth or he could be classically like the Jews know where the money is. But at the end of the day, Stephen Hoffenberg would sell his mother down the river if it meant making him look just that much better. And so I think we know Stephen Hoffenberg, as much as you'll, you'll see him on the Filthy Rich Doc on Netflix saying that he's there for redemption and all of these things, know that this is his past. Know that this is who he is. Know that he smiled when he said he ran a Ponzi scheme. Know that he took money that older people set aside for their medical expenses. Know that he ruined countless lives and flew around on private jets. And not to mention, he was a nasty boss at the New York Post. So that's it for Stephen Hoffenberg for today, Justin. Any, any parting thoughts on him? Uh, if you were looking for top-notch journalism... That's fair, balanced, thoughtful, thorough, cites all of its sources. Please read the New York Post. My One of my favorite recent articles that the New York Post ran, they ran it about uh, where I live, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, when Newark, New Jersey opened a Whole Foods and was featured in Vogue magazine, a writer from the New York Post ran an article that said he had passed through Newark Penn Station at 3 a.m. So, so Newark was not gentrifying. That was the entire oh, article. Jesus Christ. That, that was really good. He had passed through the train station at 3 a.m., so he felt compelled to tell people
people not to come to the entire city of Newark. That's the kind of journalism we can expect from the New York Post. Ah, the New York Post. Aren't you happy you were saved? Anyways, as always, Emily Fusco, thank you so much for the great research here. Hannah Shaw for the legal research and finding that little tidbit about the one eye that Hoffenberg was doing. Uh, Thank you for that. Hazel Bryan, Marie Anderson, thank you so much as always. You guys are the best. And this is a production of Zero Cool Media and The Last Podcast Network. We'll see you next time.